welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm your host, Gavi Baker-Whitelaw, and here is my co-host, Morgan Davies. Hello. So this week we watched the jukebox musical Rock of Ages, requested from our Patreon subscriber Liz, featuring songs from classic 1980s rock bands like Journey, Bon Jovi, and Joan Jett. Um, Julianne Huff and Diego Bonetta star as a young couple trying to make it big in the music business, surrounded by a supporting cast, including Catherine Zeta-Jones, Paul Giamatti, Russell Brand, and Tom Cruise, playing a rock star named Stacey Jacks. We gather that Liz, who was a big fan of our interview with the vampire episode, wanted to make us watch a, I wouldn't describe this as obscure because it was high profile at the time, but a Tom Cruise movie which um, is somewhat out of his usual remit. Um, In the past 10 years, he has only made action blockbusters apart from this one film, which came out in 2012. And chances are you guys haven't seen it because with all due respect to Liz, not a good film and also was kind of a flop at the time. Tom Cruise, on the other hand, very strange and entertaining role here, which we will be getting into. (laughs) Yes, this is a bad film, but uh, I wouldn't say I regret watching it as a connoisseur of Tom Cruise's it was an experience person yes and it certainly makes you think about the subgenre of jukebox musicals and how to make them good or bad yes which we will also be discussing before we get into that though i have a story i would like to share with you which is that i saw this on broadway 10 years ago which i don't think we've discussed yes why with your dad with my mother okay she brought my little brother to town and purchased tickets to this for reasons that escape me to this day. My little brother is gay and was closeted at the time, but even at the time, I would not have selected this as our choice. Yeah, I was like, of all the Broadway musicals to take him to this. <laughs> I know, my poor mother, very well-intentioned, but um, perhaps not the, not the, again, choice I would have made. I dug through my G-chat logs from 2010 to find what exactly had happened, because I remembered that someone in our party had left at the intermission, and I couldn't remember whether that had been me or my mother or my brother. That was the impression this made on me at the time. And apparently, my brother, who was 13, had been so scandalized by the naked ladies, or, you know, largely naked ladies, there's a strip club sequence that he had insisted that he and my mother leave so they left halfway through and I was like well someone has to stay to the end I guess and I watched the whole thing by myself my assessment of this at the age of 20 was like I mean it was fine so so I'm coming at this film having actually seen the original production I think with the original cast but I cannot say that I remember it with a high degree of specificity but it was definitely better than the film even though my little brother would not have agreed i mean this film is a very intriguing creative concept because obviously i mean it's based on the stage musical but at the outset the concept of this stage musical is how do we create a palatable musical around a selection of very famous 1980s hair rock songs that everyone likes and this movie basically the plot is like coyote ugly but not good but the tone is like very weird and uneven because the two main characters are in this just like a very basic high school musical-esque romance but like without even the narrative tension of a high school musical where it's like oh they're from two different social groups it's just like there's a girl who's from Oklahoma and she 
moves to the city to become a rock star and like meets a guy in the street and he gets her hired at the bar where he works and it's like a bar where all the rock shows are and they both want to make it as singers but then events occur that tear them apart like he thinks that she's cheated on him as a groupie with Tom Cruise's rock star character so they break up and then they both like go down in the world like she ends up working at a strip club and he ends up getting corralled into singing in a boy band which is like the most ignominious thing that could happen to an aspiring rock star in the 80s and Paul Giamatti is an evil manipulative music manager guy it's all very kind of working on stereotypes in this genre and meanwhile in the background Stacey Jacks is this huge megastar that everyone thinks is amazing and all the women are extremely horny for and he is being manipulated behind the scenes by his manager while also being kind of a cliche of this sort of drug-addled rock star who's constantly having orgies. Although, incidentally, in a similar theme to, I think maybe it was our Mission Impossible Fallout episode, this is another one to add to the list of movies where Tom Cruise is canonically a virgin. Um, (laughs) Because while this is an unprecedentedly horny movie for late-stage Tom Cruise, where he is very careful to not have any kind of like sexual content in his movies... There's all these women like flashing him and like he's being all like seductive to this reporter who comes to interview him and it's meant to be like very raunchy but he does not have actual sex until the last five minutes and it's pretty clear that he is like wearing his pants while there's just like naked women hanging around in his office. So it's pretty amusing kind of way for them to get around what I assume may have been a PG-13 rating. But at the same time, this movie is so incredibly exploitative towards women's bodies that one of my flatmates came into the room while I was watching it, was viscerally disgusted and then left. And I was like, wow, my standards have really been lowered. So I was like, yeah, I guess it's kind of sexist, but like, what isn't these days? And she was like, she like doesn't watch movies very much. And she was like, I can't believe this. It's disgrace. The camera's just like <laughs> ogling all these women. It's so exploitative. It's just it's like, no, no, that's cinema, that is. <laughs> Well, there's a scene with the reporter who's played by um, Malin Ackerman, who always winds up having to play these roles, uh, where they clearly are meant to be having sex, but yeah, they, again, they don't, don't actually take their underwear off in this weird sort of like residue from the Broadway production thing, right? Because yeah. if you're on Broadway, of course, that's how you would be doing it because the actors aren't going to... And it all like, takes place in musical them. land, so you're sort of right. it's metaphorically just like a dance routine in their underwear. <laughs> right, which fine. But in a movie, like, it was so bizarre. And I was like, what? what? I was <laughs> highly amused to see that that role, which eventually did go to Malin Ackerman, was originally offered to Anne Hathaway and Amy Adams. And in 2012... Those actresses were maybe not quite at the absolute pinnacle of the A-list that they are today, but they were pretty close to that. (laughs) And like, it's like, okay, you had scheduling conflicts with making respectively Batman and Superman as the girl in those two movies, which is also not a wildly great role, but get that money. But it's also like, that is insulting. This is a role where it's literally just like, what's your role? It's like, oh yeah, you're an incompetent, horny reporter who sleeps with her subject. And it's like, wow. (laughs) Oh, goodness me. <laughs> so poor Malin Ackerman once again got the short end of the stick. <laughs> yeah. The other movie that Amy Adams had out that year was The Master. So <laughs> I think she was fine. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> the idea that she even looked at that role is comical. I just, it, I don't find that plausible. No. I think <laughs> probably they offered it to her and her manager was like, No. No. <laughs> <laughs> this, this... 
jukebox musical with incredibly annoying side roles for Alec Baldwin and Russell Brand. It was just, I'd forgotten about Russell Brand because there was that period where he was everywhere and either you liked him or if you were me, you find him extremely annoying. I'm sure many of you also find him extremely annoying. But in this film, he is, as always, playing a Russell Brand character, but they've made him do like a different accent. So he's got, I think it was meant to be a Liverpool accent, but sometimes it sounds a bit Australian. It's very weird. And like the first half of the movie is just him and Alec Baldwin kind of co-owning this rock club and there's loads of gay jokes. And then in the second act, it's like, oh, actually they're a couple. They're in love with each other. And then they don't examine that any further. But it was like, wait, what? It was. I was like, this is, this is not what I was expecting. <laughs> so when he appeared at the beginning, I was like, oh... Remember when Russell Brand was a thing? Like he like had a moment and like was a was a presence in movies. And I think I can't, you know, pull any names out of the top of my head, but I feel like he was fine in a couple of things, like doing very much his thing, but like if he was, you know, controlled by the directors, he like sure whatever. This is very much not one of those cases, right? It's very annoying in this movie. But then Alec Baldwin actually was almost I don't think his performance exactly is worse or like less annoying than he Russell Brand. He was powerfully in this. phoning that in, but it's he's so incongruous that it was just the second he appeared at the beginning, he's got this horrible wig on. All the wigs in this are so bad. I just burst out laughing because I was like, "Excuse me," <laughs> but it was like, like an what? SNL skit because like there's a certain type of character that Alec Baldwin plays, which is basically Alec Baldwin, which is a wealthy, self-absorbed, unpleasant white man. And in this, Jack Donaghy. Yeah, he is Jack Donaghy. Literally, it's like, and it's like when he was younger, he played like a hotter and slightly less evil version of that character. And in this, it was like, oh, we've slapped a wig on him. It's like this is immediately SNL sketch territory. And like all through the movie, I kept fixating on kind of him compared to Catherine Zeta Jones because they both have like comparably supporting roles in this. Like he's this bar owner manager guy who's like the crusty, like I love rock and roll guy. And then Catherine Zeta Jones is this character who is the wife of a politician and she is obsessed with this sort of purity quest to get rid of rock and roll because they had to fabricate some kind of antagonist for the story. Um, and she's like clearly secretly really hot for Stacey Jacks, but is like subliminating this into like a purity quest against horny rock music. And her performance, I think, if anything, is even better than Tom Cruise because Tom Cruise is very weird, which we'll get into in a moment, but Catherine Zeta-Jones is giving this her all. Catherine Zeta-Jones gives everything her all. She is a wonderful performer. And I just kept thinking in my mind, like, how much better she is than Alec Baldwin. Because Alec Baldwin, he is the type of sort of high-level American comedy actor who can just have a small role in, like, two movies a year, get paid a fuckload of cash. And because they're basically just paying for him to be in the movie, he doesn't really give a performance of any kind. Whereas Catherine Zeta-Jones is someone who I'm going to go ahead and assume has had to do a lot of roles which are just written for hot women and has had to use her natural charisma and talent to make those into something interesting. And here she has been given what is actually a very funny role and I think is one of the few comedy elements of this movie that actually lands because this film is allegedly a comedy, but all of the intentional jokes are not good and all of the parts that I was laughing at were not the parts you were meant to be laughing at, apart from the amazing idea of Catherine Zeta-Jones wearing like a pastel suit and doing hair rock dance sequences while pretending to be sexually repressed, which was a delight. I loved her. (laughs) Well, also, she's one of the only people in the film who actually is like a musical theatre I mean, the two leads are. The two leads are musical theatre people. Um, Yeah. yeah, Julianne Hough has a 
very strong dance background. She's done Dancing with the Stars stuff, I think. Although that's not put to use here at all. Yeah, and there's then, like one um, scene where she does some good dancing. And it was like, oh yeah, she's a dancer. Yes, and then Diego <laughs> Boneda is like um, a big music star in Latin America, I believe. Um, but they are given so such nothing to do that it really doesn't, you know, it, it doesn't help them. Um, but Catherine Zeta-Jones is like, I mean, she was in Chicago, as people will perhaps Famously. recall. Yes. Won an Oscar, yes. And um, you can so tell in her biggest musical number, which is in a church, humorously, that she has those chops. Like, she just knows what she's doing. And that sequence is set up like a musical number in a way that a lot of the rest of the movie isn't. Like, of course, it's all jukebox, but that scene with her is framed more in a classical Yes. Like musical way, right? Like there's Because they want to avoid that for the other stuff because they're all like, oh, it's rock and roll, so you can't have like a big dance sequence. And it's like, right. actually, the traditional dance sequence is better. <laughs> yes. And she sings much better than virtually everybody else in the movie, so that helps as well. And she's just a very good actress and is playing into the camp quality of her role in a way that is very satisfying. <laughs> so, yes, I give her a lot of credit for just leaning in to what she's doing in a big way. Yeah, I think you're totally right about the difference between the sort of types of actors that they are, where, you know, if you're Catherine Zeta-Jones, she's so, so talented, and I don't know what her sort of work status is. I don't think she really does a whole lot, and I'm sure part of that is voluntary. She has kids, whatever, but, you know, when you do get something, you're going to really work your ass off, and Alec Baldwin's like, whatever. I don't give a shit. And then the scene, yeah, where he and Russell Brand are like, actually, we're in love. I I was texting our friend Charlotte at that point, being like, oh, I'm watching this movie, and like, Russell Brand and Alec Baldwin were in that? And I was like, wait, what's happening? <laughs> like, like, in real time, being like, what the fuck? Because like, it was just so, it was incomprehensible to me that this was where this was going. But it wasn't really going there, because it was never mentioned again. I mean, this film, narratively, obviously, as you can probably tell, somewhat disjointed, and all of the romances are nonsense. Like, it's there's this weird situation where it kind of starts off and you think the girl is the protagonist, but for most of the film, immediately after meeting this guy who has no personality, she, like, basically is trying to support his career for no apparent reason, rather than for trying to forward her own career as a singer, and I was like, what's happened here? Um, but I kept thinking, like, who is this movie for? <laughs> and so the director, um, Adam Shankman, is this very well-established uh, director, producer, and choreographer. He, like, choreographed a ton of stuff, including, like, musical numbers in Glee and a bunch of stuff in Buffy. He's directed, like, five or six just mainstream comedy movies. Um, he produced the Step Up franchise. He's produced a ton of sort of not very interesting kind of mainstream dance and musical movies and TV kind of stuff. And he's gay. So which kind of adds an interesting element to how incredibly male gazy and misogynistic this movie is. <laughs> Where it's like this weird combo of kind of the narrative is this very innocent high school musical-ish story about these two young people who are not even slightly rock and roll. There is no aspect of this movie which is reflective of kind of the stuff that you see in movies about like 1970s, 80s rock stars. Like obviously Stacey Jacks, uh, Tom Cruise's character is this kind of cliche of the decaying rock star who's like really hopped up on various drugs and has just got loads of groupies everywhere. But tonally, 
It's this very simple kind of rags to riches story, which seems like it should be from the girl's perspective, but because it's presumably aimed at like male fans of 1980s hair rock, it's just got loads and loads of scenes that are just kind of zooming a camera in on a woman's tits or like strip club scenes and that kind of thing. But it's like, it still doesn't feel, even though it's pretty sexist, it still doesn't feel really like it's a film that is there to appeal to the cliched sexist straight man. So it's kind of not surprising that this movie was a financial flop, despite having, you know, famous people in it. Uh, Puzzling. Yes, I was thinking watching it, like, I mean, this came out seven years ago, obviously, but even at that point, this kind of music is so not in right now. Or seven years ago. People right? are, like, people have been obsessed with Journey for like the past decade. Yes. And people do I know mean, all of these songs. Right. It's not like you hear the song and you're like, what is this? I, yeah. You know, we're all alive. We have had the radio on in the background at the supermarket before, right? But as like a white person growing up in the suburbs in the 90s, this wasn't exactly the music my parents listened to all the time. But, you know, they grew up in the 70s and 80s and like... This this very broad genre of thing, like that was more the, in vogue, I think. Whereas now, like that's not what kids are listening to from their parents as much, I don't think. And obviously, rap and hip hop are so much culturally more significant than yeah. like old rock stuff, right? And the idea that like young people would be in any way compelled by this kind of music is ludicrous and they don't really make a strong case for why even like as a nostalgia object this would be interesting it did really well on broadway so obviously on that level it worked like it was on broadway for like seven years or something like it really lasted a long time but it feels totally culturally void of any relevance i was thinking like there was that hbo show vinyl that martin scorsese produced a few years ago that lasted for like nine episodes that i think was in the 70s i remember that being announced and just being like who is this for right it's also about the sort of rock stuff in the 70s and it was just like no no one cares about this and i say this as someone who again like my parents played us a lot of they're kind of like 70s rock stuff. Like I love sort of like not hip 70s music and like I love Bruce Springsteen, right? But I was thinking specifically about like Springsteen versus this. I'm like Springsteen is huge right now. He is having such a big I moment. I mean, you just saw the Springsteen like, movie. Well, right. So which also flopped incidentally. So that didn't do oh, financially really? well either. But, but it's a really positive critical response. Right, so that was received very well by critics. This is Blinded by the Light, um, the new jukebox Springsteen movie, which is about um, a young teenage British-Pakistani boy in England in the 80s who has sort of issues with his family and like finds himself through the music of Bruce Springsteen. It's directed by the same woman who did Bend It Like Beckham um, years ago. And I think they botched the release. I think they should have done a limited release and then widened it. And they released it wide in August and no one went and saw it, which is not hugely surprising. But um, everyone who's basically everyone who seems to have seen it liked it a lot. I thought it was fantastic. Um, But the difference between Springsteen and the stuff in this movie is that 
I mean, Springsteen is better, in my opinion. I love for Springsteen. But I've been sort of witnessing on Twitter over the past couple of years, all of these people of, like, our rough age cohort suddenly become obsessed with him because all of his songs are about, like... Class. Like, class stuff. And <laughs> and also, he's hot. <laughs> right. He's, he's an unproblematic hot. hot fave who's still married to his wife. <laughs> right. Like, there's just... And he's still alive. He's doing, incre- doing an incredibly successful job of self-mythologizing. And his music is all about the sort of anxieties of the time now, right? Like, it is really relevant, even though most of it was written decades ago. So he makes sense as a figure who in the current moment is culturally relevant. Whereas all of the stuff from this movie, like I like many of those songs. It's not like they're bad. It's just that it doesn't have any strong reason in the aught or in the you know teens of this century to have like a strong meaning for people. And that would be okay if the movie were, amazing right like if it were just kind of the backdrop for some incredibly compelling interpersonal story but because that's not the case and the music is being is what's being used to sell the film like that's it there's just nothing there like the whole movie is all just about like oh my god they're trying to kill rock and roll but rock and roll is like, <laughs> like okay. we just have to fight to keep <laughs> well, it alive this is the thing right because it's like this movie because once i got about 10 minutes in like first of all actually when i started this movie i did not realize it was a musical so when it opened with a really sincere musical number i was like what the fuck is happening right now <laughs> which was the same experience i had with the genuinely brilliant uh, elton john biopic musical this year which we did a mini sewed on on patreon it's great i loved that movie but um it's completely the wrong tone for the genre of music because this film came out four years after Mamma Mia. So I assume that people saw the success of like transferring that stage musical to screen and were like, this is a no brainer if we can get like the rights for all these songs. But the problem is that with Mamma Mia and with the Elton John musical and to a certain extent with Moulin Rouge, which is also Jukebox musical, but is much more high concept. The thing that works with all those movies is that they are extremely emotionally sincere um, which is the correct kind of tone for just a straightforward musical with a bunch of dancing and kind of cheerful and upbeat, but also like sad classic musical structure songs. And in this, they are trying to do precisely the same thing tonally, which is a really sincere, somewhat lighthearted, but romantic musical with songs which are all like incredibly vapid and cynical because all of the songs are just like either just about sex, but in like a really dumb way or they're just like, I love rock and I love to rock out. And there is nothing edgy about this mu- movie. And it's just absolutely ridiculous when characters are like, yeah, these ru- these music managers are trying to ruin rock and roll. And it's like, that's absurd. This whole concept is absurd. Uh, if they'd gone for like a sort of spinal tap angle and made it so you're using all the same songs and basically the same characters, but have a much more cynical attitude to the story, you could have made it into an actual functional comedy because you'd be poking fun at these characters, which are ridiculous. Because, like, obviously, this entire ecosystem is populated by people who are either very cynical, self-created celebrities, where they've, like, formulated this image that appeals to, like, 80s rock and roll fans. Or they're just dummies. Like, they're people who sincerely are like, yeah, rock and roll is my religion, and it's really important for me to be dressed up in, like, a leopard print body stocking at all times and have, like, massive feathered hair and like be doing coke off like a stripper's ass all the time. And it's like, it's such an overblown concept that you can't really be like, oh yeah, it's this like 
young people falling in love and realizing their artistic dreams. It's like that just does not gel <laughs> with the genre and its image in kind of music history. So they should have done a parody. They should have done Spinal Tap. They should have done the Andy Samberg movie version of this movie, which would have been great. Pop star never stopped stopping. 1980s edition. <laughs> Well, and the reason Spinal Tap works so well, right? I mean, Spinal Tap is a masterpiece. Obviously a masterpiece. So it works well for many reasons. But that takes place in the 80s as well, of course. And there has been by that point yeah. in the 80s. Because the whole problem with like American 80s culture in general is that it's so mainstream and commodified. Yeah, that's actually, by, come to right? think of it, another old episode that people should listen to. In fact, one of our best Velvet Goldmine, which is about the transition between the early 70s, like glam rock and all the kind of queer culture, and then just incredibly commodified, glossy 1980s American concert rock. Yes, I was just thinking this. So not that there was no underground culture in the 80s, of course, but the, you know, if you're making a movie about even like straightforward rock stuff in the 70s, I mean, you can't do it with a PG-13 movie. It's just not possible. But the most popular acts are going to be much more sort of grungy and drug-filled and straightforwardly confrontational and messy in a way that I think could lead to an interesting film. Whereas by the time you get to the <laughs> 80s... It's time period like, takes place during the height of punk, which is hilarious. <laughs> it's like, we forgot punk. <laughs> right. Um... But like the mo all this sort of like really big popular billboardy stuff in the eighties is you know what what this is, and because they're so honed in on this narrow sort of like rock and roll thing, and I mean Bruce Springsteen like born in the USA was the eighties, like of you know, but this kind of thing which is reflected also in like. 80s movies like that was not a good decade because so much of it was just this blockbuster schlock it's hard to get past the superficiality of a lot of it if you aren't undermining that which Spinal Tap does because it shows how stupid it's all gotten and this movie is so sincere about everything that it just can't function I think and yeah it, this would work better if it were like the 60s, right? Because then you can just have full-on nostalgia, like, you know, everybody in like a pink dress, whatever. Well, that is, that is Mamma Mia and Mamma Mia right. 2, which famously take place in a land without time because there's like a very nebulous number of decades between those two films where people age at very disparate rates, which I, <laughs> I respect a great deal. At one point, I kind of crunched some numbers and it was like, yeah, there's no way to really make sense of this without people being time travelers. But um, yeah, kind of considering how you could make literally this exact same movie work in that framework would be to have the young people have exactly the same sort of wide-eyed, innocent musical attitude. And then all of the older characters already in the industry are the ones that are being parodied. And they're this kind of Andy Samberg satire final tap situation and you could have the two types of music intercutting with each other so like half of the characters are in a sincere rags to riches musical and the other half are performing these really big stadium rock songs that are just as entertaining but they're just like really cynical and unpleasant all of that however would be more interesting than this movie is willing to commit to unfortunately so. <laughs> but we must talk about tom cruise because he is giving a great deal of performance as always um more so than his colleagues you will not be surprised to hear yes there's just i mean 
Liz, who requested this movie, put it this way, and really accurately, that he's just in a different movie than everyone else. And that's true. He is completely in a different planet. I mean, as always, really. He's always on a different planet than everyone else in the room. But everyone else is either doing something really campy, like Catherine Zeta-Jones, who is doing it well and in a fun way, or is just not good. Like, the two leads, I really don't think it's their fault. The material is so bad that what are you going to do? But the two young leads, they're just non-entities, right? Yeah. They look extraordinarily blonde. Yes. And then (laughs) there's Tom Cruise, who literally appears in his first, you know, moment in this movie with this, like, diamond codpiece thing? Like, I don't like because like for the first section of that scene, I was like, is he wearing a strap on over his trousers? Because like <laughs> most of this film, he's shirtless, and in fact, in one scene, he pole dances, which is once again very bold for late period Tom Cruise. <laughs> but yeah, he's like in this kind of classic. Oh, he he's in like his rock star den with a couple of semi naked groupies, and he's wearing his leather trousers with either a strap on or a weird jeweled codpiece over the top. And he's accompanied everywhere by a monkey, of course. Um, he's very shirtless in this film. It's just, I mean... It's weird. It's, it's very strange. So you correctly pointed out that in the past decade, as in starting in 2010, he has exclusively done action films. Yes, most of which are not good. Right. So I have not seen Edge of Tomorrow or Lived, I Repeat, depending on what you want to call it. But that one everybody loves. Yeah, I do want to see one. that. And then um, the Mission Impossible movies are good. But that's pretty much it. And the others are all aggressively forgettable. Yes. And he's just trying to be like, here's my really bland career compared to the fact that my personal life is I am the most famous cultist in America. <laughs> Correct. And for a period of several years kind of in the middle around this time actually people loved ghost protocol in 2011 but that was the first good thing he'd done in a while he just has had a, a several year run of like ugh. and then i feel like fallout last year everybody loved so much that everyone's kind of now like tom cruise what a great lunatic you know like he's on an upswing at the moment i think in a big way and everyone's very excited for top gun which we'll see but um are they are people really excited for top gun you should see my twitter feed my friend people are thrilled i mean i would love for top gun to be good original top gun is a wild time you know you can't trap lightning in a bottle well but if they just make another mission impossible movie which it certainly looks like oh they are they are making at least one more no i mean Top Gun. Oh, right. Appears to be just another Mission Impossible movie. I'm not going to complain. That's fine. Yeah, I think I saw the first Top Gun after we recorded our Fallout podcast. I mean, it's wild. It's just wild. It's not the best film I've ever seen, but... It's very 80s. Oh, so 80s. It was a very (laughs) aggressive propaganda tool for recruiting into the US Navy. They had US Navy recruitment stalls set up in cinemas to make sure people would want to go and join the flying around part of the Navy. Uh, I believe Air Force, no? They are Navy pilots. Okay, well, there you go. Simple mistake to make, but I wrote about uh, (laughs) how Hollywood is connected to uh, military recruitment, so it is Navy pilots, strangely enough. Sure. I mean, <laughs> why not? But uh, 
I was saying before we recorded, I really want to watch Jerry Maguire and I just haven't gotten around to it yet this summer because that is obviously a romantic comedy. The the sort of stuff he did early on in his career compared to the late stuff, obviously we talked about this extensively in the Mission Impossible podcast, but the like sexual energy of his early performances <laughs> compared to the late stuff is so different. And then watching this movie was so interesting because he's doing a completely different kind of role from the stuff that we are now used to seeing. And yet there is still something that's just sort of strange about the energy. So like, I think the difference is in Interview with a Vampire, right? The character is very much attempting to cater towards the concept of him being romantic and sexually appealing. And also it really feels strongly like he is feeling desire throughout that film. In this film, despite the fact that the director is literally attracted to men, the tone of it is kind of like a straight man's vision of what women are into, like the kind of the whole rock and roll thing. So there's all these female characters that are doing this comically overdone performance of being hot for the rock star, but it's not super convincing. And while he is like lounging around shirtless all the time, it doesn't feel at all like he's attracted to anyone. Like it doesn't feel like he really desires any of these women. And when you get to the end and like the kind of denouement of his stories, he's like, oh, actually, I realized I am actually in love with this random reporter who I had sex with during an interview. It's like, what? Like, where did that come from? (laughs) Well, and the scene where they have sex without taking all their clothes (laughs) off, is definitely played kind of comedically. Yeah. Right? In a way that makes it, again, hard to really take him seriously as a sex object. Or like, well, the scene is really weird because it'll sort of go through a phase. Again, this is obviously happening very quickly, but there will be like a couple shots where clearly it is meant to be really serious and sexy. And then all of a sudden, something will happen that's, meant to be comical yeah and so i mean i never found it particularly i was, I was watching it, i was like this is the least sexy thing i've ever seen but it's <laughs> like the film is clearly meant trying to be appealing but then it's like it can't quite do it and then pulls back and it's like haha and then tries to do it again for another 30 seconds and then it's like nope funny joke again but his performance nevertheless is so unbelievably committed beyond anything that anyone else is doing in this movie I think I read on the Wikipedia page that, like, he was singing five hours a day for, like, weeks and weeks leading up to the shoot to, like, prepare himself. And he always wanted to be a musical and just, like, had never gotten the chance because he was afraid, blah, blah, blah. And I just thought, like, of course, of course, that who you are, you just have to do that for... And, I mean, he's singing is fine. So, I it, congratulations. As opposed to some of the other people who are not singers who are bad so you know and he does a couple musical performances where like he's on a stage like performing as a rock musician that are very convincing in a way that I actually found somewhat unsettling because I have seen rock musicians in concert and I was like oh yes you look like one of those people but because it's Tom Cruise I was like but what is happening like it was just something so uncanny about it which I think he can't escape at this point right like you just always know it's Tom Cruise and so it's always Tom Cruise and he's simultaneously like an acting genius, a weird robot, an incredibly menacing, creepy, disturbing cult leader. So, <laughs> well, 
there's just something about him that I find so interesting because he is unbelievably talented. And in this sort of late stage, there is just something about the performance. And I don't think it is only the fact that you're going in with the knowledge of, I mean, obviously you can't divorce the two things. Like if you're going in knowing it's Tom Cruise, but there is something about all of his performances where there's just something in there that's not fully being released because he just can't do it. And that I think makes the, them all a bit uncanny. I was thinking of um, Magnolia, which I really want to see again, which is the Paul Thomas Anderson movie he did in 1999, which is the best performance of his, to my mind, that I've seen. I doubt it would be surpassed by anything that I haven't seen, um, where he plays this kind of cult leader guy who runs these seminars on like teaching men how to pick up women, basically. And he's also playing like a crazy person. I'm sure I talked about this on the Mm -hmm. Mission Impossible podcast, but he's making use of his crazy eyes, right? Like he's definitely playing a weirdo, but he also is very much playing a human person and he breaks down at a certain point and the mask kind of falls off and it's totally believable. Like you're, you just believe everything that he's doing in a way that I don't feel any of the more recent performances you can access that kind of emotion. And um, there's just something about him that's so odd. And it was really interesting to me to watch that in this context because it was so different from the Mission Impossible stuff in so many ways because it's such a different context. Like He's not running around, you know, jumping off buildings or whatever. And yet there was still something that felt very similar to me. He's an odd one from afar. My official rendering of, of what is going on with him. So I'll watch him. In just about anything, he should probably be in jail. But, uh, allegedly, who knows? He's a strange bad man. Hollywood is a rich tapestry. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Thank you for opening our eyes to the existence of this film, Liz. Um, if anyone else wants to request any films from us on Patreon, um, you may go there and do that. We always welcome new suggestions. We've done a lot of these in the past. Um, our next one from the top $100 tier will be Jupiter Ascending, which we're very excited to record. Uh, That will also be with a kind of audio commentary, which you can listen along with us. It will be a lot of fun. I'm really looking forward to that experience. I haven't seen that since it was in the theater. I've seen it like too many times, but I think rewatching it again while being able to talk about it with you will be okay. Um, And also like recently I've started writing, I've started reading this comic that began in the 80s, which I strongly suspect influenced this movie. Um, It's just like not as well known as the stuff that influenced The Matrix, which I think is why it kind of passed everyone by at the time. It's called A Distant Soil. It's by a woman called Colleen Doran, who started writing and drawing it when she was a teenager. Um, And it's very much from that mindset. And she is a fucking genius. So yeah, we're having a lot of fun with that kind of space elves book at the moment. So yeah, Jupiter's Ending is what we will have next week. And in the interim, we will also have our Patreon episode on the North and South TV series, uh, following on from our recent episode on the book, which was super interesting and fun to read. So we are going to get into the Richard Armitage situation there. Yes, will be very fun. I'm looking forward to rewatching it this weekend. It's high quality. 
really enjoyable. Only four episodes. Yeah. So an easy, easy, but very fun watch. I think it's on Netflix basically everywhere. So if you would like to join for that, uh, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash overinvested podcast. Gabby, yeah, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find my work on The Daily Dot and you can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor. I am on Twitter at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at overinvestedpod. We are on Tumblr at overinvestedpodcast. And our website is overinvestedpodcast.com. Thanks. Bye. Thank you.